This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Kate O'Neill. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, everyone. I have one order of business to do before we get kicked off, and that is I would love to welcome these five lovely folks to join me here on stage. Thank you. Thank you for that applause for them. I'll let them take their seats. And then I want to let you know why they're joining me here on stage. This is a program, hashtag upfront, and the idea is these five lovely folks have goals of speaking to your group and other groups one day, hopefully soon. We'd love to hear their lovely voices. Uh, and they'd like to just break down some of the barriers to that by being up here, and they're just observers just like you, but they're going to get to see you and how friendly you are, which is a cue to you to be very friendly. <laughs> Don't intimidate them. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, we've got Ton, we've got Balin, we've got Marissa, Tina, and Alex. And they're joining us here, and they will be our upfront uh, participants. So please, another round of applause. Thank you for that. Oops, I suppose I had that slide up there for you. Oops. There we go. That's that. And there's the, uh, the Twitter account if you want to look into the program some more. I think it's a wonderful idea. <clears throat> so with that said, hello, humans. <laughs> and any robots that are in the audience, hello to you as well. Are there any robots in the audience? Raise your spindles. Uh, no, there are none. But you know it's not very far off, right? That's telepresence robots. You know, some form of robots are going to be sitting with us in events like this in the not distant future. Uh, so that's kind of weird. And I, <laughs> I actually sometimes make this joke about how I am very happy to be here, partly because it means I'm still making my living as a professional speaker, which is a job it's going to be hard for robots to take away from me. Uh, but then, I got scheduled alongside a robot <laughs> for, for a keynote a coming up in a couple of months. Uh, so yeah, so there's me and there's a famous robot sharing the keynote stage. Uh, so it's coming, people. They really are coming for our jobs. <laughs> uh, but seriously, that, that notion of how robots slash emerging technologies slash AI slash all of the different kinds of, of newfangled gadgets and, and technology are, are changing the world around us is very much at the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. And the, the context of this is that the basic question that drives my work is how can we help humanity prepare for what by all indications looks like it's going to be an increasingly data and tech driven future? I'd like to ask you actually as a matter of survey, <clears throat> how many of you worry from time to time about the future of humanity due to issues around technology like AI and, and robots and automation and things like that. That's a lot of hands. And just out of curiosity, how many of you worry about the future of humanity due to issues other than technology, such as climate change and things like that? Yes, that's every hand. <laughs> uh, which is a little depressing, but I think it, it sort of speaks to why this is such an urgent matter for us to discuss and why we need to talk about the issues that relate to user experience and technology and product design and all of these other disciplines in the context of the future of humanity and how we're going to make it good for ourselves and for generations to come. So I want to give you some context about where I've gone with my work and why, what I'm bringing to this discussion, and that is that I have a, uh, the opportunity to be an author and speaker. Uh, I've spoken for a, a wide variety of brands and types of organizations uh, and have even had the lovely opportunity to speak at the UN um, with the city of Amsterdam do some great media contribution work. Uh, and, and what this has all done, not to, you know, not to brag about my credentials, but I just want to show you that the ideas that we're talking about this morning are cross-disciplinary. They're important to everyone. Everybody is dying to hear how we're going to address this issue of how the world is changing due to technology 
and due to everything besides technology, and what we're going to do about that. So what I find is in, in across all of these different types of companies and industries, there's this one fundamental dilemma, and that is this. Oftentimes, when we sit in meeting rooms inside of companies, we talk a lot about what's good for business. We talk about hitting our growth goals, hitting our revenue numbers, how are we going to improve the business, what is the strategy. We talk about that. But often we're not asking the question of what's good for the people who are inside and outside the company that we're serving and that are part of the company. And if we do switch to the other side of the equation, it's often in the context of, say, a nonprofit or a B corporation or a, a special foundation or some sort of special project that a big company has done as maybe a tax write-off or you know, some sort of charitable outreach. It's not usual, traditionally, that we address those questions in the same breath and in the same context. And that's why I found it to be a really important uh, dilemma to unpack, because this dichotomy is false, and it's dangerous. And it's increasingly dangerous the more power and, and momentum emerging technology brings with it. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I also want to talk about when I say an increasingly tech and data-driven future, what do I mean by that? So what does it mean for us to be facing this tech-driven future? So one example that I think is pretty vivid and you should all be familiar with is, is this. I'm sure you all have seen, or have maybe at home, a Nest thermostat or some other smart device that sits in your space, an Internet of Things type of device, right? Connected device. Is this a physical or a digital device? Are we talking about a physical or digital experience? Is this an online or offline experience? It's both, right? It's both. And I think that notion that uh, we used to design under, or that we used to ex plan experiences around, has, has gone to the, the way of everything is integrated. And that's step one in moving us toward being able to understand how to prepare for this future, is recognizing that just about everywhere interesting that the physical world and the digital world connect, that connection layer happens through the data transacted in our human experiences. And that was the central principle of my 2016 book, Pixels in Place. Uh, and that, talking about that and working around that with different companies led me to the further uh, realizations and studies that we did for Tech Humanist. But when I talk about the data that's captured in the human experiences, by the way, a lot of, of, of people are, find it very easy in the context of business meetings and reviewing analytics and reports to forget the fact that business data is largely about human experiences. And another way of saying that, it's one of my sort of favorite short phrases, is analytics are people, which uh, sounds a little Soylent Green, I will grant you. <laughs> but, um, but it's a really important shorthand, I think, for rem remembering that when we're looking at data, we're looking at the needs and interests and motivations and desires of real people who are transacting with our business and our brand and the experiences that we create for them. So the other one consideration that I think helps to bring this all together and think about unpacking that dichotomy is to remember that <clears throat> technology always advances, or almost always advances, to fulfill business objectives, right? It's, there are the, the tinkerers and the makers and the gadgeteers and so on who sit in you know, garages and such, uh, and they or garages, I don't know, what, what, whatever makes it easier for you to understand. Sorry for my uh, hodgepodge American accent up here. <laughs> but the tinkerers, you know, they do create technology for, t for technology's sake, but the way that that reaches us, the way that that gets to the mainstream, is through a business deciding that they want to invest some money into it and make some money back, right? So it's always due to business objectives that technology reaches scale. And when we look at that, we can think, well, maybe the opportunity there, as is the premise of my book, Tech Humanist, is that if we can just figure out how to align business outcomes with human outcomes or objectives, that we can figure out a way that as business succeeds, it will bring humanity with it. 
and we'll be using technology to scale those, those opportunities. What that looks like in a Venn diagram is this. I actually, uh, I realized recently, sort of blurted it out in the middle of a presentation, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I think in Venn diagrams, Gantt charts, and mind maps. That's like my brain 90% of the time. Anyone else have that sort of a graphical diagram sort of brain? Yeah, okay, you my people. <laughs> uh, Venn diagram uh, is the nerdiest thing in this slide, so uh, in this, uh, this presentation, so enjoy, my fellow nerds. Um, but this business objectives, human outcomes, and technological capabilities, the sweet spot where these meet, uh, I think, is purposeful, meaningful human experiences at scale. The at scale part is the technology, right? It's, it's using the technological capabilities to accelerate what's possible. But it's the, the purposeful and meaningful part are the intersection of the business opportunity and the human experience. And I'll, I'll explain a little more about that. But through that idea, that gives us the opportunity to say that dichotomy is false. And how we're going to break that down is we're going to say we're going to use technology to both make the business better and make human experiences better. So that's how we're going to get there. And I'll tell you how, what, what the process looks like. It's three parts, three parts to this. One is we need to build our best technology. And I'll explain what I mean by best. We need to grow our best businesses, and I'll explain what I mean by best. And we need to become our best selves, and I'll explain what I mean by best. And in fact, why don't we start there? So I think if we're saying, you know, we, we want to understand this relationship between tech and business and humanity, it's a pretty good idea to start asking, what do we mean by humanity? What's, what is it to be human? Right, so what makes us human? I'm going to actually ask us to think of a word. Everyone in the room, for a moment, think of one word that, for you, epitomizes the human experience. What one word encapsulates what you think it is to be a human? And I'm not going to ask you to shout it out or anything. I'm going to try to guess it. All right, so everybody got their word? Give me some nodding. Okay, good. All right. How many of you thought of something like creativity or problem solving or innovation? Not as, oh, one hand, couple, couple hands. All right. Very interesting because that's usually a very popular set of answers. You're not feeling very creative this morning. It's early. <laughs> Understood. Understood. All right. Let me see if I can get a little more uh, pinpointed here. How many of you had an answer like empathy or love? or compassion. Oh, that's a lot of hands. You're a very loving group, and I like that about you. <laughs> but it still wasn't all the hands. Did you guys notice that? Not all the hands. So let me see if I can get it on this one last guess. How many of you thought of checking a box? <laughs> no hands? No, of course not, right? Because this is absurd. And even if you did think that this was the human characteristic that really defines us, I got bad news for you. <laughs> it's not uniquely human. <laughs> so let's take those answers, though, and unpack them a little bit. So uh, there weren't very many people who gave this answer, creativity or problem solving or innovation, but it is one of the, the usual answers. I've, I've asked this question of a lot of audiences. I've done surveys. And it is one of the answers that people often give. And maybe you already all are, are kind of ahead of me and you know that this isn't a uniquely human characteristic, as lovely a characteristic as it is. We know that non-human animals uh, use tools and solve problems. Uh, you know, ravens use tools. I was even watching um, Blue Planet, the BBC series, and they were showing a fish that uses a particular rock and throws mollusks and other uh, shellfish at the rock to crack them open. So fish use tools, uh, <laughs> so they're solving problems too. And actually, could you say, that machines are capable of creativity and problem solving. Would you say that? Yeah? What about this? How many, if, how, which of these uh, modern art paintings would you imagine, would you guess, were created by a machine? 
all of them. I like that there was a murmur of, oh. <laughs> yes, all of them. <clears throat> this was um, a generative adversarial network was fed images of uh, modern art paintings and then created these images, among others, that were meant to be like um, representative of what it ha what had been shown. So this is AI-produced art. Is it art? What's the difference between images that read as art and art? Hold on to that. Let's talk about this, this set of answers, empathy and love. It's a lovely set of answers. I love that you guys are a very loving room. It's probably the most endearing of the human characteristics. But again, I would say maybe not a uniquely human characteristic, right? We have probably seen plenty of examples for us all to be convinced, or most of us to be convinced, that non-human animals are capable of acting lovingly toward one another, being affectionate at least, right? Showing something that, that at least approximates love or compassion. Uh, we've seen um, elephants and dogs and chimpanzees and things like that, you know, animals like that, be protective of one another in, in cases where it would actually put them in danger. So uh, that's maybe a close approximation of love, if not actual love. And then what about machines? Could we imagine a scenario in which machines were acting lovingly or demonstrating empathy? I'm seeing a lot of shaking heads, but... How many of you are familiar with therapy bots? So chat bots that are programmed to interact with human interactors, um, to ask them questions as someone may, maybe someone is uh, ashamed or nervous about beginning therapy. And so this chat bot gives them an opportunity to begin that interaction in a way that's a little more low stakes, perhaps. And this therapy bot asks questions that you know, encourage the person to begin to perform more talk therapy, like dig into the roots of the issues. Is that empathy? Or is it behaving empathetically? Behaving as if empathetically? And what's the difference? What's the difference between empathy and behaving as if you are empathetic? What's the difference between art and images that read as art? Well, you may have answers to those, and I would love to hear them after, especially over drinks or something. It's always the right time to have those philosophical questions <laughs> discussed. Uh, but I have an answer, which is that I think that maybe it has something to do with a deeper truth or some sense of intentionality. Does that seem like it's kind of in the realm of, yeah, I see some nodding heads, like that's kind of the idea. But also I think just asking those kinds of questions and trying to get at the heart of that sort of thing is part of... The, the characteristic that I would say is actually the one that is most human, which is humans crave meaning. Humans crave meaning. We seek it. We thrive on it. We puzzle over it. When it's offered to us, we can't get enough of it. And when I say meaning, I'm talking about all kinds of meanings. Meanings of meaning. <laughs> I was a linguist by education, so I come naturally by an interest in the semantic level of meaning and sort of what we're trying to communicate with one another when we, when we talk, what, what, what sort of package of, of communication is happening in our interactions. But there's also, you know, these other layers, status, significance, purpose, truth, those sorts of things, all the way out to these layers of cosmic and existential ponderings, like what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> Why are we here? Right? I even think when it's, it's interesting when you take a word like significance and break that down, that there's this word signify and this word significant, which, you know, signify is about, you know, what something represents, and significant is about what's important. So you actually have this kind of how and what that are part of the questioning too, as well as within the idea of purpose, the why, there's a lot of really fundamental questions that are being asked within these embedded concepts of meaning. It's really deep. <laughs> and I think what's interesting about that is when you start thinking about how to apply the notion of meaning and its many layers of meaning to experiences, you can start realizing some very interesting fundamentals about technology and about designing products. So I think, for example, that augmented reality 
is going to be one of our most powerful examples of exposing layers of meaning for people. So let me tell you that in my lifetime, so I've been working in the technology field for about 25 years, and I would say that I've had that scalp tingling, like, you know, crawling back in the neck sensation twice. Once was when I saw a graphical browser for the first time in the 93, 94, whatever it was, and I went like, this is going to change everything, and it did. And the next time was when I saw augmented reality for the first time, and I went like, this is going to change everything, and it didn't. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. <laughs> Not in the same time frame. But I haven't given up on it yet, because I think there's an awful lot of interesting potential, and I think people just haven't quite realized what to do with it yet. So you see, this is a, um, a blipper uh, screenshot of looking at a, a Starbucks coffee cup of mine. And uh, you can see that, I don't know how well you can see in the image, that there are some uh, words in a tag cloud that are showing up around it. Uh, coffee, cold, and medicine. So clearly it knows me very, very well. <laughs> but these are, these are labels, these are words, these are concepts that describe this coffee potentially. It could describe its relationship to me. It could describe its relationship to its surroundings, to uh, the context it's in. Those could be all different attributes that are being exposed through the layers, depending on what's relevant, what's significant at the time. What's significant at the time. Meaning is about what matters. It's about what's important in every case. So maybe that's starting to make sense. Maybe that's like, OK, I see where you're going with this. But how does talking about meaning get us closer to helping humanity prepare for our increasingly tech-driven future? And I'm glad you asked, because I will tell you. Because meaning is about what matters, but innovation is about what is going to matter. Or at least that's how I like to think of it. And if you use that framework, if you ask yourself those two questions or use those uh, sort of parameters as you're thinking about the technologies that you work with and the products that you are designing or the experiences that you're creating, what matters? What is going to matter? You're going to be in a great position to be able to set these experiences up for the most meaning to be embedded within those experiences. So I have a client, I've been working with um, Kelly Services, the uh, staffing company. Are they somebody you're familiar with in Australia? You guys know Kelly Services? I see some nodding heads, good. So they're a staffing company. <clears throat> and you know, they've been around for decades and decades. And they've been known for this you know, Kelly green color that is their corporate color. And it was always the Kelly girl. You know, that was sort of their tradition. You would be calling them for like a temporary secretary staffer if, uh, in, in the sort of Mad Men era. Uh, but they've obviously evolved. And they're trying to figure out, now, looking ahead at the future of human work and the future of automation, what's this all going to look like for them? What's it going to look like to be the Kelly services that someone might call, that a, that a CEO might call, when they need additional capacity within their organization? It's not going to be about human workers all the time. How can they make sure that they're positioned well to address the bigger picture. So they've done a brilliant job of setting up an R&D lab, and they're doing very, very innovative work trying to understand how to be the service that provides both human and machine uh, augmentation of the workplace. There's no easy answer on this, but they're at least thinking about what matters and what is going to matter. So that's an entry into how to think about our best businesses. Remember our best tech, our best businesses, and our best selves. We've talked a little bit about the best selves because that's the meaning piece. That's really understanding that. Best businesses is going to be so much about understanding that emerging tech of all its kinds, automation, AI, and so on, is going to add capacity and scale like we've never seen before. And that's the truth. I've been working, I've been doing a lot of keynotes for uh, organizations that focus on uh, robotic process automation, and I've seen some incredible examples of RPA that's in place already and has been for years 
um, within different organizations, and they're doing phenomenal job of, of making automation very, very reliable for these organizations. Uh, and they're also doing a phenomenal job from their corporate perspective of reducing their need for human laborers in those roles. And that is very, very unsettling. But it will, it will add capacity and scale like never before. And I think what's important for us to realize here is that our actions and our decisions will have outsized consequences. They will. Some of those are going to be unintentional. And I think we need to try to anticipate as many of the consequences as we can to minimize those unintentional consequences. So let me give you an example, which I think is kind of a fun one. Um, Amazon Go, I'm sure you must all be familiar with it at this point. How many of you are familiar with Amazon Go? This should be like a, almost an entire room show of hands. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so it's a, a grocery store retail concept where you have um, this uh, just walk out idea and they have a gate at the front of the, the uh, store. You have an app that you sign in and it has the QR code and then you just walk in, scan through the gate and you're signed in. And then it's just a grocery store, like any other grocery store, with stuff on shelves. So you just gather up what you want of the food that you want, figure out what it is that you need, and then you know, buy things you don't need because that's the grocery experience, right? Uh, is that just me? <laughs> uh, buy a ton of things you weren't coming for, and then just walk back out through the gates. You never stop at a cash register. You never interact with a cashier. Um, which certainly, <laughs> you may be thinking like, well, that's the conversation we need to have, right? What happens to all those human cashier jobs uh, as this thing scales out? Well, that is a conversation to have, but it's not the one I meant to have with you today. Actually, the, the thing I want to bring up is that when you start your app for the first time, you get this kind of onboarding tutorial, and it says, you know, because anything you take off the shelf is automatically added to your virtual cart, don't take anything off the shelf for anyone else. Does that raise any red flags for anyone? Yeah, right? I'm sure it must be common here in Australia, just as it is anywhere else in the world, that when you can't reach, let's say, a product on a shelf, you ask someone to reach it for you, right? Right. This is so common, in fact, that recently I was re-watching the movie Double Indemnity. Everybody seen this movie? Yeah, great movie, classic. And there's a scene where a random woman asks Fred McMurray to reach a product on the shelf for her. Can you reach me that package of baby food? Well, what if this had been an Amazon Go back in 1944? <laughs> well, you know, he'd have had to, I don't know, I don't do a very good Fred McMurray impersonation, but he'd have had to been like, lady, I can't get that for you. You know, this is an Amazon Go store. And, and she would have had to have been like, well, she would never have asked him, right? Because she would have been like, oh, duh, of course, it's an Amazon Go store. We don't do that in the Amazon Go store. I don't want to spoil it for you in case you haven't seen a 1944 movie, but uh, <laughs> she's actually interrupting them just as Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck are conspiring to cover up a murder, too. So, you know, maybe she actually foiled their conspiracy. It could be. You know, so when we ask each other for help in grocery stores, we could be breaking up murder cover-ups. <laughs> you never know. But my point is, what happens if we get used to the idea that we just don't ask each other for help in the Amazon Go store? You might think like, well, that's not so big a deal, right? It's just the Amazon Go store. But how many of you are thinking as I'm saying this, oh yeah, Amazon acquired Whole Foods too, right? A few of you are like, uh-huh, yeah, I was thinking about that. 475 stores worldwide. And then they announced, and Amazon announced at the end of last year, that they plan to open 3,000 more Amazon Go stores by the end of 2021, which is like right around the corner, right? So now we're talking about some scale, right? Now we're talking about pretty much the dominant experience that's going to be what you have when you go grocery shopping. And what's to say that that's where that stops, right? It's probably going to be, if not, if not the future of retail, part of the future of retail. We can expect that, right? So now what I'm saying is we don't help each other in any store. And how long do you think it is before we get conditioned to that idea and socialized to that idea and we just don't help each other at all? Anywhere, ever. 
Okay, so maybe that sounds a little hyperbolic, like, Kate, you're overreacting just a bit. Calm down. Quit being so American. I understand. But my point is, that's what happens when you decide what an experience is going to be. Experience at scale does change culture. Do you know why? Because experience at scale is culture. The decisions you make, the actions you take within the products that you design and the experiences that you're creating are creating culture. So we need to be very, very mindful of those consequences that could come from that. And of course, my silly Amazon Go example is meant to be a stretch, but it's meant to be an illustration to help you think of what could happen with the products that you're designing too. And it's an absurd example, right? But I like this kind of tension between the idea of meaning and absurdity. Any artists in the audience? Yeah, got a few hands. You know, there's this tension between what is true and what is maybe weird, right? You can play with those ideas. Artists have done so for a very, very long time. I feel like anywhere that you have not defined what is meaningful, it leaves this void into which absurdity can flow. And it's not an intentional kind of absurdity. It's not a playful kind of absurdity. It's the kind of absurdity where, you know, we have the same meetings over and over again and nobody knows why. Or we use weird language at work that none of our friends would under ever understand us saying, right? That's the kind of absurdity I'm talking about. We don't want that kind of absurdity. We don't want the kind of absurdity that creates experiences that distance us from each other. VR is super, super cool. But when, and when you're wearing the goggles and the headset and you're in a completely immersive experience, wow, it's amazing, right? But to everyone around you, you look like an idiot, right? And you're flailing around and crashing into stuff. That's not an experience that keeps you connected with the people around you and the place around you. And maybe that's okay now and then. But we have to know, we have to be very intentional about what we're creating and why and what the context is going to be. We cannot give absurdity a chance to scale, because it will. It will creep and scale and go everywhere. We have to be very clear about defining meaning and being very intentional about purpose and significance, what matters and what is going to matter. And in that way, we can keep that unintentional absurdity from entering into the equation. So, Having said that, how many of you share with me my love-hate relationship with automation? Anyone? Yeah, okay. I feel you. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I appreciate that automation is super, super cool and powerful and can do really great things for us if we deploy it well, but that if we deploy it well is kind of the catch, right? Yeah, so I think Bill Gates really said it well when he said that uh, automation applied to an efficient operation will magnify the efficiency, and automation applied to an inefficient operation will apply, magnify the inefficiency. But I actually think that you could substitute the words meaning and experience and absurdity here, that automation applied to a meaningful experience will magnify the meaning of that experience, and the automation applied to an absurd experience is going to magnify the absurdity. And that's what we need to be cautious about. Because even if maybe you're not designing uh, ex automated experiences now, the experiences that you are designing will soon be automated, or you will soon be designing for automation. That's just how everything is moving. And I want to show you the, the, the sort of other piece of the consequence of this. This gets us a little bit back to that that Amazon cashier jobs consideration, which is that there's a study that was done at the University of Oxford a few years ago, uh, which showed the potential impact of jobs that are likely to be automated, or at highest risk of being automated. And I, I apologize, it's a United States map, that's where they did the actual study. Um, but I've zoomed in on, I'm from New York, so I zoomed in on New York, and you can see that the, the green bubble there uh, represents, it says 55% of jobs potentially automatable. But you can also see that that green bubble is not one of the bigger bubbles on the map, right? So Las Vegas, which I can't, can't, can't seem to point to, but Las Vegas, the really, really big circle in the lower, right, lower left, is got to be an enormous number. 
And that is, it's like a lot of customer service jobs, a lot of sort of trucker jobs, things like that. We know what types of jobs that represents, and we know those are very easily automatable. So think of the socioeconomic consequences of this many jobs in short order being changed as a result and maybe replaced by automation. And I did find a, a map uh, that, that pertains to Australia. You may have seen this type of study before, uh, but this was published through the uh, Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Uh, and they show the, um, the local government areas with more than 100 workers uh, that have the greatest risk, uh, what does they say, probability of job loss through computerization and automation. So you can see where these red and orange areas are uh, the highest risk. It's pretty significant numbers of, of areas. So this is going to impact all of us worldwide. And we need to be thinking. We need to be very thoughtful about this. And what I'm saying is not that it's a disaster, but I think what we need to recognize is that the main effects of uh, human work, uh, the main effects of automation on human work is going to be augmentation. And augmentation just means change, right? You've all had your work changed by technology at some point, right? Think about what is the last tool that got inserted into your workflow, like Slack or something like that, or maybe a CRM or something. Whatever tool that was changed your workflow. That's all I'm saying. It is going to change our jobs, but there are a significant number of jobs and types of jobs that are going to be displaced and replaced by machines, by automation, by self-driving vehicles. Truck drivers are going to be hard hit by this. Uh, and we also know, particularly in the US, we can identify particular populations and demographics that are most hard hit by this. We know that communities of color and marginalized populations are most likely to be affected by this displacement and replacement. And so we're talking about some major, major socioeconomic issues. And it might sound like that's outside the scope of a UX discussion, but oh-ho, my friends, it is not. I think this all belongs in the consideration set of those questions that we ask in our meeting rooms when we think about what's good for the business and what's good for humanity. Let's have those conversations. Let's be open, eyes wide open about this. We can't necessarily stop progress, progress, but we can think about what these consequences are going to be and be having these conversations out in the open. And I do want to point out this last word on this slide, created. Yes, jobs will be created by automation. Uh, there will be new types of jobs. I think things, things like, um, imagine that there's nuance engineers or something. Or um, you, know, you might be somebody who's, uh, who's looking over curated sets that um, AI have pulled together and reviewing uh, images that were uh, gathered by image recognition and saying, yes, that's the one, no, that's not the one, and so on. There's a lot of opportunity for humans and machines to work side by side. The future of the workplace is probably not going to look like this, although it's kind of cute. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I saw this illustration. It accompanied a Wall Street Journal article, and I just loved it. So I reached out to the illustrator, and I was like, can I, can I, can I please use this illustration? I'll pay you. What do you want? And he said, just mention my name. So this illustration is by Kikuo Johnson, and he's wonderful. So <laughs> please look into his work. He's done New Yorker covers. He's done all sorts of great stuff, and I just think it's great. So, uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hilarious representation of this flipped over world, but I mean, I think we do have to think about all the possibilities here, what it's going to look like for humans and machines to work side by side. And I think it forces us to recognize that automation is a business and human opportunity for sure. There are plenty of good things that can come out of this. We just need to be very clear about the problems that it presents strategically, culturally, and in terms of design. So as we think about how humans and machines can work side by side, not necessarily robots looking at cat pictures, but uh, what does it look like in the real sense? One thing that's very interesting to me is that when you think about how humans work best, what are the conditions under which humans thrive in a workplace? And it's this, it's like humans thrive on having a sense of meaning about our work. We, uh, we like having shared common goals with each other, like as a team. And we like having a sense of fulfilling something bigger 
as what, than what we're doing, right? Like being part of something bigger. That's what works for humans. For machines, all they want is clear instructions, right? Like simple code, efficient, elegant, right? Don't put more in than is needed. Keep it streamlined. And you know what's very interesting about these two very different sets of requirements? You can meet them both by articulating a very clear sense of purpose, right? If your organization, if your company, if your team, your project is able to articulate what it is trying to achieve at scale, it is in a much better position to be able to give its humans and machines the correct information to be able to have meaningful experiences or successful, effective experiences within the work that they do because purpose is the shape that meaning takes in business. That's what I think anyway. That when you think about meaning as it applies to a workplace, it all comes down to the way humans, uh, business is a human construct, right? It's an abstraction, but it's something we created. And the way we make it feel more human is to have a sense of meaning or purpose behind it. Why are we doing what we're doing? And what are we trying to do at scale? I think a very easy, clear illustration of this and a fun one is always Disney theme parks because their purpose statement, when you boil it down to three words, is create magical experiences. Just that, create magical experiences. Simple. And you think about the entire organization hierarchically across different job functions can all figure out how to solve a problem if it's brought to them, assuming that they have the autonomy to solve the problem, if they just think, how do I create, solve this problem to create the most magical experiences? What's very interesting about this is that even when you think about you know, beyond the sort of uh, work culture or um, human elements of this, if you think about digital transformation and how do you deploy a data model and a technological set that, saw, that, that addresses this, well, they did that. They can actually justify their $1 billion investment in the My Magic Band wearables and infrastructure because it so clearly represents creating magical experiences. Right? It, it embeds all this payment information and room key and uh, park admission, all sorts of information into the wearable, into the wristband, and makes the entire visit feel seamless or magical. They know your name when you go to check in at a ride or you go to check in for your dinner and your reservations are all there. All of it is there. And I guess you know, the thing that for you to take away is even when you think about the projects that you're working on, can you be this clear? Can you, in three words to maybe five words, articulate what it is you're trying to achieve at scale? Three to five words. It really helps. Because how often do you get this approach to uh, digital transformation or, or um, deploying new technologies? Hey, what's our AI strategy? <laughs> Anybody ever had a, uh, an executive slap a news clipping down on their desk and go like, VR, what are we doing about it? <laughs> I've had that happen. <laughs> I'm like, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, something, something cloud, I don't know. <laughs> but obviously that's not the ideal way for us to be thinking about this. Our ideal way to think about it is how do we amplify the strategic purpose that we've already articulated? How can we be very intentional about taking what we know we're trying to achieve at scale and using data modeling and using various kinds of emerging technology, whatever is relevant, to achieve that sort of alignment and, and uh, amplification. All I know is that out of everything we do, humans cannot leave the determination of meaning up to machines. That is not their strong suit. That will be how we get to our worst tech, not our best tech. <laughs> uh, that's not what AI does well. Um, AI at this point has not been particularly great at determining nuance. This is a pretty famous image recognition problem, muffin versus puppy. So it's funny because like, we can feel a little smug about it, like, oh, blueberry muffin versus chihuahua puppy, like, I can easily see the difference. And you can because you're using kind of like 
uh, emotional memory. Like you know the fluffiness of the puppy and you know the like sweetness of the muffin and that's helping you be able to recognize these things. There are all these kind of sensory experiences and cognitive associations that are helping you make these distinctions. Here's some more, by the way. You're not having any trouble knowing which one is fried chicken. <laughs> Humans are generally pretty good at nuance. And it's because nuance is meaning. We are wired for meaning. We're good at this stuff. So it should be on us. It should be on us to, to in infer what is meaningful about the, cre the experiences that we create. It's going to get harder, by the way. Uh, a few previous speakers yesterday also mentioned uh, this increasing phenomenon of deep fakes. Um, we're dealing with a big problem here. Because this uh, is an example you may have seen before um, that shows a, a, uh, a model that can use one reference, reference image, such as the Mona Lisa here, and create very lifelike, convincing animations that you would not imagine were not this person, right? Making these gestures and facial expressions. It's gonna be a problem. We're not gonna be as easy, it's not gonna be as easy for us to know what is meaningful, what is true, what is significant, what matters, and what is going to matter. Oh, by the way, have you seen this one? I think this is kind of interesting. This is like landscapes that you can create. There's, as you can kind of see, the bottom uh, uh, color bars is the, the design palette of sorts. So it's almost like, it looks like a MS Paint, but then there's this vocabulary at the bottom. So if you draw in the brown area, that's rock, and the sort of teal blue is sky. And then it interpolates your instructions and generates an illustration or a, a photo-like composite that looks every bit like a real landscape. Like this kind of thing is going to be incredibly problematic because we're going to have a very hard time knowing the difference. And so far we don't have quite yet the sophistication for machines to even know the difference. Uh, we're getting there. There's, there's some work happening in that space of being able to use machines to de detect deep fakes, but it's gonna be always trying to stay one step ahead, right? It's gonna be a, a shuffle on that. So we just need to be aware that this problem exists because we're back to this. <laughs> Not everything is what it seems. And we have to be aware of that interconnected meaning and absurdity that's happening and be very sophisticated about it. Uh, really quickly, here's a Kate O'Neill tweeted, fun example. me 10 years ago probably would have played along, but me now ponders how all this data could be mined to train facial recognition algorithms on age progression and age recognition. Well, Kate O'Neill, who wrote that, joins me now from New York. Everybody remember the 10-year challenge? Yeah. Did you play along? Yeah, a couple of you like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't believe necessarily that this was a conspiracy that someone necessarily engineered. But I had this tweet that went viral. And then I unpacked it in a series of tweets. And then that went viral. And then Wired asked me to write a piece sort of explaining the, th the thinking behind it. I did that. That went viral. And so I ended up on all these news channels like BBC and NPR and uh, Australian Broadcast <laughs> Channel and um, Canadian TV and so on, like all over the place. And it was because, as I said earlier, everybody cares about this stuff. We all can recognize at some level that we're in danger and we need to understand what is happening behind the scenes? So, you know, here's the, um, the article was, like I said, super popular. It was even referenced at the top of Reddit, and Trevor Noah of The Daily Show referenced it. <laughs> so this is an incredibly huge phenomenon. And I guess the point of that is this is a really powerfully important area, the, the area of, around which, you know, humans are being duped on a regular basis, and we now have very little way to distinguish between when something is just for play and when something is going to have some insidious motive behind it. Uh, so we have to be on, our, on the lookout. We have to be thinking about this interpl interplay of meaning and absurdity. We have to be thinking about 
what we do when we participate online. We also had to be thinking as creators of experiences, you know, how can we make sure that we're building trust into the experiences that we create and we're using the most integrity and, and apply, applying the, the greatest sense of ethics uh, to the work that we do and using human data respectfully. So am I describing you dystopia? As I'm talking about this, I don't think so. I think that we have an opportunity to be very intentional about using the emerging technology to create something better. We can create our best tech. And it starts with understanding that, uh, and I think Aral mentioned this yesterday, a few other people talked about the idea of leaving behind this term user experience, at least at some level. At some level of abstraction, this doesn't serve us to think about users and customers and student experience and patient experience and guest experience and so on, because it's compartmentalizing the human experience. And what we really need to do is integrate the human experience. We need to be thinking, thinking about integrating and connecting the human experience and being very holistic and very intentional about it. And uh, so I have proposed, uh, in Pixels in Place, I have a, a model that I propose called Integrated Human Experience Design. And it looks at the idea that uh, integrated is, is online and offline, all contexts blurred together. A human, of course, I'm talking about that integration of all the roles that we talk about, because obviously all of us are all those roles all the time at various times throughout our lives, or most of them. Experience, which I define as the intentional layer of interactions and transactions, that we create and design, which I uh, very intentionally define as the adaptive execution of strategic intent. In other words, that you have some kind of strategic intent. It should be driven, derived from your sense of purpose, right? Your sense of why you're doing what you're doing. What are you trying to achieve at scale? What matters? And then approach it in an adaptive way. You're going to try to get better and better as you go. And then I also built a, a model to uh, build on that I had. My, my friend Jeffrey Zeldman refers to that integrated human experience design as I had. You're welcome to as well. <laughs> uh, but I built on that for Tech Humanist and talked about the idea of creating uh, meaningful machine-led human experiences. So if we assume that more and more of the experiences that we create for humans are somehow going to be uh, data-driven, algorithmically optimized, automated, or somehow led by machines, we have to be very uh, intentional and clear about how to do that very well. And so here are some of the principles there. I think one of the things, like number one here, when we talk about automation, oftentimes we talk about automating the menial things, like the idea that we're going to automate things that are routine and, and uh, you know, kind of that get in our way, so we'll just be able to do the meaningful work. And that's fine. I think that's an important piece of making ourselves more productive and having a more fulfilling job for ourselves. But I think if you take that to scale, and imagine a world where everything that can be automated is automated, and it's all menial and meaningless, that's a really horrible dystopian image. Like, we're surrounded by meaninglessness. And so wouldn't it make sense to try to infuse some of those experiences with more meaning? Some of the things that we automate try to make sure that they have some sense of what is meaningful about the interaction that we're creating and about the relationship between the company and the consumer or the brand and the, the customer or whatever the relationships are. Try to create some connection. And then automate that sense of empathy, uh, not empathy in the sense that Liz unpacked it for us so beautifully yesterday afternoon, where it, it feels like condescension, but empathy where you're truly trying to feel about what the person uh, in the situation is going through, where you're really trying to bring that into the consideration, because that will help create the right context for automating meaning into those experiences. And then, of course, use human data respectfully. That's so critical. We have to be aware that the data we're collecting, we are, uh, it does represent actual people, and we have to treat it with respect. I, I agree with this idea Aral talked about, about uh, minimizing the data we collect. You know, be very conscious about what we're collecting and how we're using it. And then as we gain, this is a, a piece that I, I offer to executives when I speak to, to corporate leaders, as we gain efficiency and profit through these uh, automated tools, reinvest some of those gains into your hum human resources, into humanity, and into human experiences. It won't always be about taking 
the efficiencies that you gained and creating new jobs. Sometimes it might, but it might just be about making those experiences nicer for the people who are outside the organization because ultimately as this kind of progresses through time, I think it's easy to imagine, we're going to enter a world that is increasingly automated, that is increasingly, uh, you know, whatever the situation looks like, whether it's universal basic income or however it's structured, we're going to have less and less to do with those jobs. And we need the experiences that we have that are created by machines to be meaningful. To, we can't thrive without meaning. Uh, so when we talk about using human data respectfully, by the way, one of the ways to do that is to recognize that relevance is a form of respect, so offering relevant experiences, tailoring them when appropriate, but also that discretion is a form of respect too. So those sort of go side by side. And then protect human data excessively. I love this uh, screenshot I took from Twitter. Uh, today's selfie is tomorrow's biometric profile. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think that it's, it behooves us to be frightened by the future, but I think we have to be very, very conscious of the data we're collecting and what that does, not only for the people who are the constituents that we serve, but for us and for the people we care about. So use our data, absolutely use it, but just use it to make meaning when you can. Create meaning in the work that you do. So can, can tech actually help us create more meaningful experiences? I think it can. Uh, I was having a conversation during yesterday's afternoon uh, chat, uh, break, break or whatever, uh, with my new friend Aditya. Are you here? Will you raise your hand? Hey, all right. And I was telling him about this uh, app, Time Shifter, that has helped me. So I'm here in Sydney. I live in New York. And uh, obviously, that's a big time difference. And I was telling him about this app that has helped me with traveling to Hong Kong, to Mumbai, and so on. And I've never had jet lag because of this app. And he was like, wow, that's technology helping us have a better human experience. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so right. So here's that app. Um, that's my husband's hair in the background on my home screen. But you set it up and you say, you know, here's my, uh, my, where I start and my time, my flight time and my arrival time. And it gives you a plan to follow in terms of the sleep that you get, when to get bright light, caffeine exposure and so on. And, and if you follow it really closely, in my experience, you don't have jet lag. I'm standing here in front of you telling you I don't have jet lag. It's amazing. If we have the data, if we have the opportunity to use even just simple technology tools like that to make our experiences better, why wouldn't we do that? What if we could use data and emerging technology to transform experiences around what makes humanity thrive? I think we can do that. I think we can take that opportunity. And there's one more uh, roadmap for us, which is that I mentioned as uh, earlier this year, I had the opportunity to speak at the United Nations, which was a thrill of a lifetime. Uh, but I've been invested ever since I've been, uh, with the work I've been doing around the their goals, their sustainable development goals, and I'm trying to help corporate leaders understand how to align the work of their business with these human objectives. This is what I talked about at the beginning. Align business outcomes or business objectives to human outcomes and use tech to amplify it so that as the business scales and succeeds, it will bring humanity with it. These are the ways to do it. These are a very clearly articulated set of 17 goals that will help everyone in the world have a better experience, have a better life, more quality of life. Uh, because also, you're not future ready if you're not thinking about the way your decisions impact the planet and the future of all the people on it. That's just the truth. All the, constant, all the conversations you're having in your workplace, if they don't have at some level some recognition of Remember at the beginning when I asked about are we worried about the future of humanity and due to things like climate change and every hand went up? We have to have these conversations. We have to. I'm going to have to skip a little bit ahead. I, I dragged a bit, I think. Um, so I want to make sure that we understand that machines are what we encode of ourselves. When we think about creating the new technologies that are going to create experiences for us in the future, we have to remember that we are deciding what's important. We're encoding our values and our biases into those lines of code, into those algorithms, into the prioritization that we encode into machines. So why would we not encode our best selves, our most enlightened selves, right? 
our most evolved understandings of the world and our most egalitarian viewpoints. We do have that opportunity. You have that opportunity. And I would encourage you to think about those types of best selves opportunities with every conversation that you have around the work that you do. So what is it that you are trying to do at scale? Ask that question. Ask that question at your work. And for me, that, that answer is I want to help humanity prepare for an increasingly tech-driven future. It's longer than three to five words. I'm cheating. <laughs> and I want to do that by helping create more meaningful experiences. And for me, the way to accomplish that is by speaking with groups like yourselves and asking you to do the work. <laughs> and genuinely trying to help you uh, make those decisions in a way that aligns better with the, uh, the opportunities we have. Because the tech-driven future isn't going to be strictly dystopia or utopia. It is going to be what we all make it. We have that power. We get to make those decisions. So please make them wisely, because I really think that the power and the capacity and the scale that emerging technology bring can bring us, truly, the best futures for the most people. That is truly powerful and truly an opportunity within our reach. It, it genuinely is. And I don't want us to feel like dystopia is imminent. I don't want you to feel that sense of anxiety that we hinted at with the survey question earlier. I want you to feel the sense of hope and the opportunity to make a difference. Make it better, please. And please use the robots wisely. Thank you. Thank you.